Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying episodes of the Mental Models podcast, you'd likely enjoy reading Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. George and I co-authored this book, Merging Our Knowledge, to provide you with an authoritative guide where our money-related biases come from and also what we can do about them. Material from Understanding Behavioral Bias is now included within the legendary Harvard Case Studies content library. Harvard Case Studies is widely used across the worlds of finance and business, and it's recognized as being one of the top repositories of leading-edge financial content. The book is available in both print and Kindle versions on Amazon. So buy it, read it, and improve your process. So we're back here in 2021. We've we've managed to cross the threshold of 2020, and the year that year is left behind us, and it doesn't seem like uh, it's very different than it was uh, in the end of 2020. But nonetheless, we charge on into a new year and a new year for the Mental Models podcast. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We have a bunch of new ideas and are excited to get back in the swing of things. Um, So today's episode uh, is about bubbles, and it's very timely. And George is going to take the lead on uh, explaining what bubbles are and what interesting opportunities we have before us. With the appreciation of the stock market, and particularly in certain areas of the stock market, and the appreciation of Bitcoin, which has had a fantastic rise this year, uh, the topic of bubbles has become much more timely. One of the things that we've done in our shop at SaberPoint is we've looked at historical bubbles and analyzed the academic literature surrounding bubbles to try to get a handle on how we should approach uh, the current circumstances that we face today. Uh, And we're talking today in January of 2020. First, I'm gonna just talk a little bit about that review that we conducted internally and uh, the nature of bubbles and what the academic literature uh, has focused on. And then I think we're gonna talk more specifically about some of the biases that are associated uh, with bubbles. And somewhere in there, I'm also going to talk about what we see uh, to be particularly bubbly, uh, as we said here at the beginning of 2021, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, shed some of the caution or share some of the caution that I have surrounding uh, you know, the, the participation and uh, what appears to be a very dangerous situation for a lot of people. Bubbles are complex and they're driven by narratives. And so we'll get into several different human biases that uh, basically drive those forward. It's not a simple process and all the biases may not be present in each case, but there's a set of them, I think, that are. I think that the ground that we have today for a bubble uh, or, or a series of bubbles within uh, the broader market is well laid as a result of the circumstances that we're in. Uh, when we had uh, the issues surrounded with COVID and we had the government response, 
where the Fed now is printing about $120 billion worth of uh, new money to buy uh, bonds and other uh, securities. Uh, you have this constant flow that's continuing to come into the market uh, that's boosting all assets. At the same point in time, we had uh, checks that were mailed out to everyone, and a lot of people were working from home or they weren't working because they lost their jobs. And uh, at the same point in time, we had Robinhood, which had uh, which which opened the door for more retail investors to be able to trade without any commissions. So zero commission trading, and this this has that has brought in a lot of new and younger investors who don't really have the experience of going through the crash that occurred in 2007 and 2008. Uh, they, you know, a lot of them uh, turned to the stock market as a means to gamble because a lot of sporting events were not uh, taking place. And so they didn't really have an outlet for that gambling tendency. Uh, and if you think about sports betting, it's usually an all or none outcome where if you lose, you lose everything. And if you win, you know, you tend to win relatively big, which tends to be a much more aggressive means of putting money to work. Yeah, games are quick events that have an all or nothing sort of feel to them. They make a poor analogy for stock investing. And if you expect it to work similarly, that, that could be a problem. Yeah, so I think that sets the stage uh, for the current circumstance that we're in. And, and I've mentioned this before in a uh, prior podcast. It reminds me of the analogy that was made by Warren Buffett about, uh, about bubbles, where it's like Cinderella's ball, and it's very wonderful, and everybody's having a great time. We're all you know, consuming uh, you know, the punch bowl, which is probably provided by the Fed. Uh, and it's their duty typically to take it away. Uh, but as the party goes on, it rages you know, harder and harder, and it's most exciting uh, towards the very end. But then when the clock strikes 12, it's all pumpkins and mice. And uh, the problem, of course, is the clock has no hands. And what that is suggesting is, of course, that we know that these bubbles come to an end, but timing their end is a very difficult endeavor. And uh, so there's been a fair amount of academic literature that's been put together exploring bubbles. Uh, how do you define a bubble uh, if you can define a bubble? Alan Greenspan famously said that, uh, that uh, you know, they're very difficult to, to find. So the Fed, it's not the Fed's responsibility to uh, prick bubbles. Now, ultimately, that's exactly what he did by raising interest rates late in 1999 and in 2000. Uh, they, they, they helped encourage uh, a reduction in speculation. But uh, yeah, the, the analogy is excellent with that, the clock with no hands. And so what that makes me think of is a really strong situational awareness is needed to observe <laughs> the party guests and the goings on so that one has a clue as to uh, what when the, the clock is is uh, is about to strike, so that there's a, a remedy here right away, just based on the Buffett analogy that one would have to watch factors very closely. 
It's a really difficult environment for an investment manager. Uh, you know, you want to generate returns for your clients, uh, but rationality is typically not your friend in these uh, circumstances. Typically, those who are doing the best in the bubble are those that are acting the most foolishly, uh, embracing uh, narrative as opposed to fundamental analysis. And at the same point in time, uh, you know, you, you do want to make money for your clients. Uh, so, you know, you'll, you'll be in a period of underperformance in most instances as these bubbles are raging if uh, you're not somehow participating in the speculative activity, uh, which is, of course, the fiduciary uh, responsibility is you're supposed to be, you know, mindful of conserving your client's assets, uh, which is, of course, what we do at SaberPoint. So it's a frustrating time uh, for most managers and uh so uh, it, it, is, it is something I think that's worth understanding and exploring. And so that's what we've tried to do in our, our office. So to do this, uh, we stepped back and we uh, looked at a lot of the literature surrounding bubbles. Uh, Eugene Pharma, uh, he uh, claimed at one point in time that statistically people have not come up with ways to identify bubbles and uh, two different academics, uh, Robin Schleffler and, uh, uh, or excuse me, Robin Greenwood and Andrea Schleffler, uh, they uh, wrote a paper that was really quite good. It's the best that we saw in connection with uh, this analysis that uh, really looked over the time period from 1926 to 2014. They identified uh, 40 different bubbles over that time period, uh, which would suggest that they're not that common. Uh, and they came up with a simple criteria that they used, which was basically to apply evaluated raw return, net of the market return, of over uh, equal to or greater than 100% for the last two years, and then a raw return of greater than 50% over the last five years. So you're not looking at a situation where you have uh, cyclical issues that are just significantly depressed and they've recovered and hence you've had a large, uh, a significant outcome. You do have a longer time span where whatever group of stocks you're looking at has been, uh, has risen over a longer period of time as well as within the bubble, bubble period. And one interesting finding that they had uh, was that this alone, if you were to short the entire group, uh, your average return would be, uh, you know, pretty much break even relative to uh, the market. Uh, there just wasn't wasn't a whole lot of uh, of difference. But if you could identify the factors that would ultimately result in a crash because you have crashes and non-crashes. Uh, but for those issues that, that did crash, uh, you know, on, typically you would see a raw return of uh, 50% or uh, more. Uh, and uh, those returns uh, become more predictable based off of certain factors uh, associated with a particular bubble. Right. So situational awareness, again, key, being able to notice 
uh, some of the predictors before others do. Yes, exactly. And so the, the different five different uh, factors that they identified were volatility. How much fluctuation do you see in the stock price of uh, the group as a whole? What they called age tilt, which is basically when you had new IPOs or new issuances, if they significantly outperformed older issuances within the group, that tend to be indicative of a bubble that would crash. And then issuance. So uh, basically with issuance, they looked at situations where uh, there was 20% or more of the, uh, of the market cap that was issued uh, in, in new issuance coming from the uh, participants within the bubble. So new stock issuances, so secondaries, basically when the company is coming to market and raising new money. Uh, the other, the fourth factor that they would look at is the market cape. Now here the authors, uh, uh, oh, and excuse me, I, I, I misspoke. Actually, uh, they have, it, the new issuance is at least 5% of new stock in the most recent year, not 20. Um, so, you know, they, they come for new issuance. The company has to have issued at least 5% of new stock within the most recent year. And then they looked at market CAPE. Here, the authors measure changes in uh, the CAPE, you know, relative to the trend that it had. So for outsized, and so market CAPE is basically the inverse of the Schiller PE ratio, which is a 10-year average of the P.E. ratio to take out uh, cyclicality, uh, and it gives you kind of an inflation-adjusted P.E. ratio, and it's a popular measure to see if the market is expensive. And the theory here is if you see the market as a whole accelerating or a very large change in what that, that CAPE ratio is, uh, over a short period of time, that tended to be more associated with bubbles that would break. So that was the fourth factor. And the fifth factor is acceleration. So not only are these stocks going up in a trend, but that trend is accelerating. So with all of these factors in mind, we looked, we took the, that paper and we applied it to uh, a lot of different bubbles that have occurred in recent history. Uh, uh, so we looked at 3D printing. We looked at blockchain uh, when you had the crypto bubble back in 2017. Uh, right around the same time was the marijuana bubble uh, when you had uh, the election. Actually, it was 2016-17 is when marijuana really became an issue. 18 was kind of where it peaked. Uh, when you had the midterm elections. Uh, and then we looked at the tech bubble from uh, 2000. And we looked at the most recent, most significant bubble that we've seen, which is the uh, current, what we believe is a current bubble, uh, which is the electric vehicle slash hydrogen uh, uh, alternative energy bubble. And when we look at all of these various bubbles, one of the characteristics is typically that once the bubble is identified, it meets the criteria that uh, was set 
was set forth in the Bubbles for Pharma paper, uh, usually it takes another three months uh, before you'll see a, uh, a break or a decline. And uh, there are exceptions to that. And when we look at this EV bubble that we see before us, and there's arguably, you could say there are other bubbles that are in play, certainly with respect to Bitcoin. I think that's a very different animal. These analysis are all based off of equities. But uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I think, can apply to the Bitcoin uh, rise as well. But it's definitely distinguishable. I mean, it, it has a lot of different characteristics. It's a question also of an early adoption of a new asset class. Uh, and uh, I think you could get burned on Bitcoin because really knowing its outcome, I think, is beyond this analysis. It's probably too volatile. Yeah, we don't really cover cryptocurrency too much on this podcast. We don't. It's fascinating. And we'll definitely have to have a podcast uh, on it at some point in time. But... For now, let's leave that aside. So when we're talking about the current situation, and uh, we will attach this analysis that we have to this podcast, to the notes of the podcast, and we you know, encourage you guys to refer to that because there are some graphs in here that are quite helpful. Uh, typically, when you're looking at some of these bubbles, one of the largest indicators as to whether the bubble will actually break uh, as opposed to kind of 50-50 in most instances when you hit that criteria as to whether it's going to break or not. Uh, if there's an appreciation to 150% within the last two years, uh, then that percentage probability of breaking goes up to 80% based off the historical criteria. The bubble that we see now is unlike any bubble that we've seen in history. So the EV, uh, hydrogen, alternative energy bubble is larger than any bubble, including the South Sea bubble, uh, you know, any, the, the dot-com bubble. And by terms, orders of magnitude. By orders of magnitude. So relative to the market. So if you just take the, the market return out of them, uh, right now, the EV bubble for all of the companies within it, uh, is up, uh, has a, a cumulative relative return from the signal. And now this is after it's already gone up 100% over the last two years. Uh, you know, once you hit that, that number, that's the signal where we're saying it's a bubble. It's appreciated beyond that by 350% or nearly 350%. So it has just been absolutely phenomenal as a whole i believe it's up about 14 times from uh the beginning of the measurement period uh which is unprecedented uh there's nothing else like it uh so uh, i think these conditions that we talked about earlier in the podcast is where we're actually enabling this to happening to yeah happen. so what's the basis for this tremendous optimism that has to be a, a part of this so i think you have a couple of things that contribute to the mentality that uh, is allowing for this. Of course, the biggest uh, component, and we've, we've done the analysis with Tesla and without Tesla, is Tesla. Tesla, uh, last year, I want to believe, was I, I think it was up 7.5x, so 7.5 seven, seven times. 
Um, and Tesla, I think, is possible in large part because of Amazon. So you could look at Amazon over a long period of time and it appreciated without profitability, right? So for many, many, many years, one of the best performing stocks in the stock market, and it did so without generating profits, uh, which I think led to an untethering for evaluation of a lot of stocks and it would justify much higher prices because it's very high profile for other companies that had little or no earnings. With Tesla, uh, there's a cult of personality around Elon Musk. And I think when you think about the election and the success of Joe Biden and more recently now with Georgia swinging the Senate to be uh, within democratic control, there's more likelihood that you'll see further government support for electric vehicles and for clean energy initiatives. Uh, and so that adds fuel to the fire for the narrative associated with EVs and for uh, alternative energy. And you couple that as well with this movement that's going on, uh, which we have talked about before in prior podcasts, towards ESG, environmental, social, and governance initiatives that a lot of institutional investors are pouring money into. But another unique and crazy aspect associated uh, with this particular bubble is a good, a very large percentage of the companies that are included in the basket are SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. These special purpose acquisition companies, they've been around for a long time. Uh, if we, another indicia of kind of a, a, uh, a peak in the market is IPO issuance. Last year we had record IPO issuance. It exceeded what we saw in the dot-com peak in 2000. Uh, and over 50% of it came from SPACs, these special purpose acquisition companies. And I won't go, I won't go into them too, too extensively, but I will say the mechanisms for these, it's basically a sponsor comes to market. They take 20% of the equity of the, of the SPAC uh, in exchange for basically opening the door. They put a very de minimis financing there. Uh, they raise money. And uh, the people that participate in the IPO, they get a unit that, you know, usually it comes to market at $10 per share. Then you get a, uh, a warrant. Typically for every two units, you get one warrant. Uh, that strikes at $11.50. And, uh, of course, you have the investment bank that's behind it. Usually they're taking somewhere around 7%. So they get 7% of the economics. Um, so before the, the – and, and this, this, this is just a pile of cash that comes to market, right? They raise a pile of cash, and then the SPAC will go and make an acquisition of a target, typically in the private market, sometimes in the public market, sometimes – the sponsor will be a private equity company and they were literally on both sides of the trade. They're the sponsor of the SPAC and they buy one of their own companies. So it's an exit for an existing uh, portfolio company for a private equity company. Those are particularly dangerous, I think. Uh, but presumably all these acquisitions are done 
at a market price and the seller is not going to sell their company at a discount. It's going to be a rational price based off of their perception of the value. Uh, and you as a unit holder or shareholder in the SPAC, well, you've already given away 20% of your value to the, uh, to the sponsor. But nonetheless, many of these things have gone up several hundred percent. Uh, and the, the, one of the tricks here is that that ownership that's held by the insiders and the sponsors, it's subject to a lockup. Uh, that comes off and eventually they can sell into the market. And that usually causes the SPACs to go down at that point in time. So historically, if we look from 2015 to 2019, if you bought every SPAC, your return would be negative uh, 9%. So it's actually that they've lost money despite that the market has appreciated significantly over that period of time. Uh, but this year, it's a very different story. If you bought every SPAC that issue, was issued this year, you, you made a lot of money because there's a lot of speculative frenzy. And I think part of the, like these SPACs are particularly attractive to a lot of retail investors. And again, a lot of these investors don't really have a history of participating in the market. So they don't, they haven't been through a down market. They don't really know what that's like. And they're also buying typically with options as opposed to buying stock itself, uh, which means that it's just a levered bet on on the stock. So um, basically, this EV trade, or basically the, the bubble that we see here, uh, if you look at this last year's vintage of these SPACs that are coming to market, and just last week, you had two days in which 10 SPACs uh, came to market, right? So that issuance is actually accelerating uh, of new SPACs coming to market. And eventually people just run out of money, right? There's just no, there's not enough money to deal with the supply that's coming to market. It's not just the Fed that can print money. You know, if I go and I tell you, Dan, okay, well, if you go out with a narrative, and most of these, most of these companies have no revenue, they're projecting revenue and they're selling based off of projected revenue in 2023, 2024. So if I, you know, create this market where I'll give millions and millions of dollars to people, in some cases billions of dollars, uh, on the basis of a promise that doesn't have to be delivered until 2024, which is just a narrative surrounding a company, a business plan, Think of the number of sponsors that will line up to take advantage of that opportunity. It's free money. Amazing. Yeah. So basically, the, the thesis here is that you have the, this historic bubble that is unprecedented. And on the other side, you have an incentive for people that are providing the supply to come to market. At the same point in time, you have these massive lockups that are coming off. Uh, really, they start to hit in waves starting in March. Uh, that's when we start to see it. And then it kind of accelerates into April and May of this year. So I predict that this bubble will crash before the end of the second quarter. Uh, and when it does, it will create a tremendous amount of pain for a lot of retail investors that are trying to pick the next te next Tesla. 
But anyway, I've set the stage and I've talked a lot. Uh, let's talk about some of the biases that are present surrounding, uh, you know, bubbles in general. Yeah, and I, I would start with maybe loss aversion being one of them, a lack of loss aversion in this case. We tend to have some level of uh, counterbalance on our thinking. Uh, if we've experienced pain or some kind of punishment, we're going to be a little bit wary. And uh, this the stage you set really lacks um, people facing punishment or gaining experience with how these things could end poorly. Um, and the result is that there's too little risk aversion, uh, and maybe an irrational appetite for risk. And that's uh, being uh, sort of accelerated by this optimism. We tend to have an optimism bias in life in general. Some of us are more optimistic than others. But uh, this notion that things are going to continue to rise and that there are great opportunities, um, we also fear missing out. And that might be part of this as well. So um, anytime you are uh, not anchored by fundamentals or by metrics, um, you run the risk that the narrative kind of snowballs and takes on an overly positive uh, sort of feel. And, and people get just too confident and uh, can really get burned. Yeah, it's interesting. When you, when you no longer have uh, any sort of tether, like sales, like if there's no sales, there are no earnings, then it's just a dream. And the, a dream is grounded more in faith than anything else. Faith in the belief of the ability of uh, these businesses to create value. But I think it goes beyond that. I think ultimately people are, it literally is the bigger fool theory. So you have somebody that foolishly buys a company that has uh, really very little prospect of delivering on their promises in the anticipation that other people will be foolish as well, but you're just foolish before they are. Yeah, and I, I think another feature of this is is uh, what's known as salience bias, which is this uh, tendency to overweight whatever's right in front of us. Availability bias is another uh, phenomenon from memory. Uh, our memories have an availability bias. Whatever happens to be on our mind um, becomes salient and therefore drives the narrative forward. So um, the notion of, um, of Tesla being like Amazon, you can make some kind of colorful comparisons in your mind of uh, following the news regarding Elon Musk and um, likening it to Jeff Bezos. And, and you can kind of create uh, what what comes to be salient is this uh, this fictional narrative of how things are going to play out. It might be might be correct. It's just that the danger there is you are entertaining notions of enthusiasm that others have to share. And reality has to eventually start to confirm those uh, that, that optimistic narrative or else uh, things will start to crash. When reality starts to move in a different direction, the narrative is no longer supported. The narratives kind of have a shelf life because the world's so dynamic. So um, that's another feature. Just whatever's salient on our minds and available right now can uh, carry things and uh, can be too, too much of that situation with nothing to really, uh, in, no other features to inform you of where the where the risk might be. Indeed, often you'll see massive moves in a lot of these stocks when they announce a partnership or they make an announcement of 
uh, some sort of a deal. Usually they'll try to find a legitimate company uh, that they pin some small deal with, uh, but they can say the word, you know, they can say uh, Microsoft or they can say Salesforce or they could say Tesla. Like, you know, we have some sort of an arrangement with Tesla uh, to provide, uh, you know, some, some, something associated with uh, their business. And uh, we, we joke in the, often office, in the office often with these companies that have no revenue, they have no, or they have de minimis revenue, or they have, and they have no profit, uh, that they're trading at price times press releases. So, you know, that reaction, that, you know, the recency bias where uh, the most recent thing that someone sees tends to govern their decision making. Uh, as opposed to something that they'd seen several months before. Yeah, recency has a disproportionate effect. Right. And the more glamorous or uh, uh, the more striking that is, that's the saliency bias, right? So The louder and brighter it is, the right. more salient it is. Right? The shiny object. So uh, really, ironically, those businesses that are the most grounded, uh, that have... Uh, the metrics that are easiest to measure, those are the ones that are most likely not to reach the heights. The ones that are likely to go the highest before ultimately crashing will be those that are purely dreams that cannot be measured because there's, there's no bound to what people can imagine uh, that the business could actually do. They're untethered. It's kind of the inverse of, um, I'm reminded of some of Peter Lynch's advice to find the least glamorous companies that don't sound at all appealing. And those will be overlooked um, as opposed to going for these flash in the pan, very loud, very bright kind of companies that uh, lack fundamentals in some cases. Well, the problem you get to is with a lot of these, there's a certain crowd of people that will participate in buying these issues. Uh, At the same point in time, you have an incentive for new entrants, new issuers to come into the market because there's this so much demand. And it's kind of like being in a boat where everybody really wants to be on one side of the boat. And eventually there's, you know, no one else on the other side of the boat uh, because everybody that, that's willing to come on to that side and the boat tips over, right? Or the analogy that uh, Jean Fontenot, one of the members of SaberPoint, has used is that uh, it's like a, a bunch of school children whose bus, school bus has broken down and they're pushing the bus up the hill. And periodically, one of the school children will run out from behind the bus and jump in the bus you know, because they want to be on the ride up the hill. Uh, and ultimately, you end up having... Uh, you know, everybody who get into the bus, there's no one pushing and it starts rolling down the other way. Yep. Gravity will uh, come into the equation once again. And things are cyclical, right? They, they have a, uh, a rise and fall naturally. Um, things don't go up forever. And that, that's the, uh, the challenge. It goes back to the Buffett analogy about not having any clock hands to go by uh, when midnight's about to strike. So uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of narrative-based uh, speculating, it's dangerous because you, you don't have evidence. There aren't clear markers. So I, I, I like this discussion with the, uh, the Greenwood and Scheffler um, uh, indicators, you know, some things that you can pay attention to that kind of ground your reality a little bit more. 
Uh, we need indicators or else we are going to run completely on uh, human bias. And that tends toward optimism. It tends toward uh, these fears of missing out. And, and it doesn't often have that uh, important risk um, calibration that comes from having experienced punishment, understanding the cycle a little better or the phenomenon a little bit better. Um, and so things become unchecked. Yeah. And I'm going to quickly run through for the EV uh, alternative energy bubble, the uh, the indicators that we discussed before, volatility, age, tilt, issuance, market cape, and acceleration. So there's clearly volatility that's present, and that meets that criteria for a bubble likely to pop. One thing, oddly enough, though, that is not quite quite present is age tilt. So the most significant uh, name in the group, of course, is Tesla, which you know today is, I believe, uh, around $800 billion dollars Elon Musk is the richest man in the world uh, because of the appreciation that's occurred with that company. I believe it's number five uh, among the largest companies in the world now. Uh, but part of that is affecting that age tilt. Uh, issuance, so uh, that is there. Stocks with 5% increase in their outstanding uh, uh, shares. Uh, well, there's much more than that that has occurred with this group. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of incre incremental issuance uh, of of shares that are coming to market uh, as the issuers try to take advantage of this unbridled enthusiasm uh, that the market has to buy these stocks. Market cape, here we don't quite have the acceleration uh, into uh, in the the overall market in terms of its, uh, valuation. Now, the market is quite expensive. The only time it was more expensive was in 2000. Uh, but it has not, you haven't had quite the acceleration that you need to see in the, in the Cape in order to uh, say that that trigger has been pulled. But acceleration is definitely there. Uh, so here, prices have ridden, risen extremely rapidly relative to how they were rising, and we really saw that kick off in November after the election. So, uh, of the different, the five different criteria that are available, three uh, check yes. That would be volatility, issuance, and acceleration. But age, tilt, and market cape don't. But acceleration is so dramatic. Perhaps that uh... that too, along with uh, along with issuance. I mean, I can tell you, uh, I've been short a number of these names, and it has been painful uh, in the short term. And and one thing that I think is interesting to note is when they break, the vast majority of the returns actually occur in the second year following the break. It's not in the first. A lot of times, you know, you would think that the crash is very violent and all of the the loss occurs very soon. But at least historically, maybe it's going to be different this time, but historically, you usually see these stocks be underperformers for two years following the break. So that's we've, this one's run a little bit long. Um, I don't know, Dan, if you have anything else that you think we should cover. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this is a... a a strong prediction. It's it's well argued uh, on your part. And uh, today we've talked just to recap a little bit. We've talked about bubbles. 
um, particularly focusing on this Greenwood and Schleffler paper, which uh, gives five clear-cut factors that one can look at to try to identify a bubble. Um, and then we've talked about how the uh, EV hydrogen uh, situation is um, a bubble almost like no other, so extremely timely and exciting. And it's driven by a variety of biases because it seems to be not very well anchored um, in uh, typical cyclical there's a whole variety of reasons we've covered, um, but somewhat uh, over-exuberant market participants without a history of experiencing a bubble bursting might be driving this. So uh, we also talked about SPACs and their involvement. We could probably do another show on SPACs at some point uh, if people are interested. Yeah, it sounds great. Lots to talk about here, lots to unpack. So Okay, we'll watch this one eagerly and see how it works out. Yeah, we'll revisit. Okay, talk to you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-star book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.